go. Okay, this is the Shia um, on the book of Yechezkel, Le'ilui Nishmosum Ephraim Shmuel Ben Avram Aria Cohen, Chaya Tova Bas Eliezer Mendla Cohen. We are holding in the 10th chapter of Yechezkel, and we're at verse 20, right at the end of the chapter. This chapter, together with 8 9, chapter 10, together with 8 9, and the chapter coming up in you know, chapter 11, all deal with a vision of Yechezkel. Uh, we'll come to the end of this part of the vision uh, as Yechezkel sees the uh, chariot, so to speak, of God um, leaving the base of Migdosh, leaving the temple. And um, he wants to tell you something in verse 20. He wants to tell you, this is uh, again chapter 10, verse 20. These the highest, these uh, creatures, these angelic creatures um, that I'm seeing now are the same ones that I saw where in my first vision a year and a half earlier uh, by the river Kavar. We talked about the river Kavar last week. And I now realize, or I realize that they were cruel. They, they, they changed in some way. In, in that year and a half, they'd been transformed into, and we know what they've been transformed into. One of the faces, the, these chayas had four faces. One of the faces was originally an eagle, was originally a, an ox or a calf, and now it had been changed into a crook, into the face of a child. Um, and it seems from this verse that Yechezkel wants to know, don't be confused. This is the same chariot. God hasn't got two chariots. This is exactly the same one. And, but of course, we've got uh, a similar gr- grammatical problem in this verse as we had earlier. Uh, he describes it, his he hachayos, in, in the first part of the verse, this is the chaya, in the singular. First he starts off talking about the chaya as the singular, and then he discusses them on the basis that they're kruvim, on the basis that they are in the plural. Um, and um, this Rashi, Rashi dismisses this. Rashi says, is in the singular. Um, it just refers specifically uh, to the fact that Yechezkel is just looking at one of the chayas. Um, um, one of the chayas, that, one of these angels that he saw in the first vision in chapter 1. Um, and he writes that chaya, whether it's singular or plural, makes no difference. We know what we're talking about here. We're talking about these angelic creatures, sometimes called chaya, sometimes called kruvim. Um, and uh, the only thing that, uh, the reason why he's talking in the singular at the start is that one of the chaya's faces has been transformed from an ox, which is a prosecuting face, into a kruv, which is an innocent face, a face of mercy. And then Yechezkel says, Vaidaki kruvim heima, in the plural, to let you know that uh, among the chayas, um, there were two faces um, that resembled human faces. There was a face of a baby, which is a kruv, there was a face of a human being, there was a face of an eagle, and there was a face of a, what was the fourth face? Um, get for a second. Um, but there were four faces, and the only one that's changed is the one from an ox that changed into the face of the baby. Uh, that's the first Rashi. Rashi that says that's, uh, that's the easy way of understanding this verse. The Rashi then offers a second opinion. He says, when Yechezkel says here, 
he's referring to a particular Chaya in the first revelation that he had in chapter 1. And what he wants you to do um, is to understand that um, the, all the faces, all the faces of the Kruvim, even though that one had changed, even though that one Kruvim, one face of the Chaya changed for all the four Kruvim, all the four Chayas, nevertheless, they're all, all the four Chayas were exactly the same now. Just like before, they had four faces. One was a man, one was an eagle, one was, a, one, one was an ox, and one was a lion. Now, there were still four faces. Instead of an, an ox, there was a baby. And, um, and um, uh, what's interesting, uh, he mentions that uh, these, the Kruvim, the face of the Kruv, was exactly the same face um, that, you, that is described in the book of Boratius. If you remember the end of the creation narrative, we're told that uh, God kicked out Adam and Chava from the Garden of Eden. Uh, he kicked them out. The reason why he kicked them out was so that they shouldn't gain immortality. Um, remember, they were told not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hadas uh, And there was another tree there, which we'll deal with later in this book, which is the tree of life. They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they were expelled. And the reason they were expelled is that they shouldn't sneak back into the garden and eat from the tree of life and become immortal. And uh, as they're expelled, the Torah tells us in chapter 3 of Boratius, chapter 3, verse 24, He was thrown out, God drove the man out. It doesn't mean just the man, man and the woman. And they were stationed uh, to the east of Gan Eden, but regarding the Kruvin, and God put these Kruvin, these children, these angels with the faces of children, to guard entry back into the garden, um, to guard the way to the tree of life. And uh, what's interesting is, the reason why these Kruvim had the faces of children is to remind Adam and Chavrin, to remind every human being that there's no way back into the Garden of Eden, there's no way back into Gan Eden um, unless you get, unless you um, recapture your innocence. That's the way. And uh, this place, Gan Eden, which a lot has been written about, um, is a place of innocence. You can't enter there if you're not innocent. And that's why they were thrown out of there. And that's why the Kruvim which you have the faces of innocence, guard the, the, the road back in. Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya here um, makes the point that if you study the writings of the Rambam carefully, and he's talking about the Mora Nebuchim, uh, the Guide to the Perplexus, the, the Rambam's philosophical um, book that he wrote for one of his students um, it, who was living in Baghdad um, and who had lots of questions on philosophy, so he wrote this book for him, which he called the Mora Nebuchim, which is inaccurately translated into English as a guide to the perplexed. It's no guide to anybody who's perplexed. It's only a guide to put to somebody that's really learnt the whole of, the whole of, uh, really, the whole of Shas. You can't really open the book of the Mora Nebuchim without having learnt the whole of Shas. And Rabbeinu Bachai says, if you look carefully in, in the Mora Nebuchim in the third section, you'll find that uh, the Ramam understood 
um, that the Kruvim in the Kodesh Kadoshim in the Holy of Holies, as corresponding to the Kruvim which Yechezkel saw in his vision. In other words, the Chaya Sakodesh, these holy angels that uh, we've discussed so much about in chapter 1, chapter 3, and now in chapter 10, uh, he writes that even though Yechezkel reported seeing four Chayas, listen to this, this is something from the Rambam, even though in chapter 1, in chapter 3, and here in chapter 4, Yechezkel reported seeing four Chayas, four of these creatures, in reality there was only one. Um, and he writes, we can confirm this from the wording of Yechezkel, he quotes our apostle, this is the Rambam's proof, He hachaya Ashera Isi. Really, it appeared that there were four, but the reality is there was only one. Now really, this is a minority opinion. Um, even in davening, we say Chayos HaKodesh. We call them out in plural. But it's the opinion of the Rambam that there really was only one. Um, and in Yechezkel's vision, there appeared to be four. Um, whether it was mirror imagery or his imagination got the better of him. Remember, prophecy comes into the part of the brain that is the... the um, the sector of the brain that uh, has got the imagination in it. And it's very easy for prophets to get carried away with what they see and extrapolate. That's why being a prophet is a pretty dangerous business. You've got to be well trained and you've got to be able to understand to only report what you see, not to let your imagination extrapolate on what you see. It appears that the Rambam uh, seems to say that uh, maybe Yechezkel extrapolated on what he saw in the first vision, and now he's telling you, you know, really, he really there was only one. But again, this is something that um, is not accepted by almost every authority. And uh, the idea is that uh, he was just staring at one of them as the chariot of God was leaving uh, the temple. The Ramban, uh, Nachmanides, who lived about 100 years after the Ramban, um, in his commentary to Shemos, in his commentary to Exodus, uh, he writes there that the reason uh, this verse begins with the singular, he that ends in the plural, Kruvim um, is understandable. Listen to what he writes. So he writes this quite often in his commentary in the Torah. He says, why this verse starts off with in the singular and ends off in the plural is understandable only to a student learned in the mysteries of Kabbalah. And so basically, you know, um, don't don't lose sleep over it. If you're not a Kabbalist, then you've got no chance of understanding why this verse starts off in the singular and ends in the plural. So, okay, uh, can't do anything about that. Uh, and then we come to verses 21 and 22. And these are really um, uh, repetitions, not really repetitions, but uh, Yechezkel wants to make sure, again, that you understand that uh, what he's seeing now as God, the chariot, the, he sees God, uh, God's chariot leaving the temple, the base of Migdosh, is exactly the one he saw a year and a half early. He says, Arba, Arba, Ponim Echad, four faces each of them had, these highest, these angels, but Arba can find Echad, and each one had four sets of wings, Udemusi Dayodam Tachas Kanfehan, and the image of the hands of a man was beneath their wings. Um, and chapter, verse 22, uh, The likeness of their faces. You should know that again, again, repeating. These were the same faces I saw 
uh, in my original vision uh, by the river of Kavar, Mar Ahem, the Osom Ish, El Eva Ponevielechu. And the appearance was, and their essence was, each one would walk or travel in the direction they were facing. Now, we've discussed almost all of this uh, in chapter one. We don't really need to um, uh, spend much time on this because you can go back to the Shirim on chapter one. It clearly explains it's just a, a catch up. Yechezkel um, here completes the chapter by describing the Chayas, again now called Krubim. Uh, they're leaving the base of Midrash with God, um, with God, so to speak, sitting on his chariot, supporting uh, the Merkava, supporting the chariot. You've got these angels, you've got the Chayas, you've got the Ophanim. Um, and he says they're exactly the same in both appearance and in essence as though seen a year and a half earlier by the river. Um, again, just a reminder here, Rashi gives you a reminder, Araba, Araba, Ponim, Le'echod, four faces each of them had, means that the human face had four faces, as did the face of a lion, the eagle, and originally the ox, which totaled 16 faces to one of the Chayas, um, so that you had four Chayas, each with 16 faces, um, and... Um, then, when you're dealing with the wings, uh, each each face had four wings, um, totaling 64 wings for each of the chayas, um, and that's why uh, the, the Tarragon points out here, when you're looking at the uh, the chariot, you're seeing 256 wings. You're seeing four, four chayas, with four, each with four faces. Each face had, had four wings, which means that each chaya had 64 wings, there are four chayas, that's a total of 256 wings. Um, so, just running down the numbers, a chaya, uh, a chaya hakodesh, uh, is a creature with 16 faces, four human, four lion, four that were originally ox-like, but now were crove-like, child-like, and four eagle-like. Each face had four wings, uh, so each chaya had 64 wings. There were four chayas displaying 64 faces pointing in four directions, 16 in each direction, um, displaying again 256 wings in total. Um, so he's confirming, he's confirming uh, that what he's seeing now is exactly the same as what he saw in chapter 1. Now, on this, the Abarbanel makes an interesting point uh, in referring, referencing this verse uh, he uses it to prove a point he made earlier on in the chapter. If you if you remember earlier on in the chapter, um, uh, or here in the, the, these last two verses, Yechezkel is making it very clear in these two cha- in these two verses, at the end of this chapter, that these angels that he's seeing now are exactly the same as the ones he saw in the original vision uh, in chapter one. And says the Abarbanel, if that's true, then the Gemara we learned earlier in the chapter from Chagiga. In chapter on uh, page 13b on Yud Gimel on the base, he said that that Gemara must be wrong, because the Gemara said, uh, commenting on commentating or commenting on verse 14 in this chapter, it said something that we've been discussing all along, that originally one of the faces of the um, one of the faces of the uh, Kerubim of the Chayas was an ox. and the Gemara says that Yechesko requested mercy re- with regards to the Jews of Yerushalayim. And asked that the face of an ox 
which is a reminder of the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf, and the punishment attached to the sin of the golden calf, be turned into the face of a crook, a childlike emblem of innocence and mercy. And the Gomorrah said, God, so to speak, acquiesced. So that um, um, in verse 14 it says, Pneho echod pneha crook. One face was the face of a child, the Pnei Hasheni Pnei On the face of the second was the face of a man, who Shlishi Pnei Arie, the third like a lion, Varavi Pnei Nesha, and the fourth like an eagle. So quite clearly, says the Abarbanel, that verse indicates that the face of the ox described by Yechezkel in chapter 1 had been replaced with the face of a crow. And here in chapter 10, verse 14. But he says here is the problem. Because in the last verse of chapter 10, which we just read, Yechezkel confirms, Udemus Penehem, all their faces, were exactly the same as the faces I saw on Nahar Kavar. Now, if one of the faces had changed, then they won't all be the same as I saw, as he saw in the first chapter. He would mention, all the faces were the same, except for the one of the ox, which had been changed into the face of a crook. So, says the Ababanel, my understanding of verse t- uh, 10, my, my understanding of verse 14, chapter 10, verse 14, must therefore be correct. And when that verse says that the face of, of one was like the face of a crook, and the face of the, the other was a, a man, and then an, a, an, a, a lion, and then a, 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 an eagle... That verse is not describing the ch- a change in the four faces of the Chayos, but it's describing the four faces of the Ophanim, and not referencing a change in any of the faces of the Chayos, because Yechezkel here, right at the end of this chapter, clearly tells you that in terms of the Chayos, the faces of the Chayos never changed. So what faces did change, or what faces were being described here in this chapter, what angels had a face like a crow, like a child, says the Bible, it can only mean the Ophanim. And if you actually look at the text, he points out, which he didn't in, in verse 14, if you look in the context of, chapter, of verses 12, 13 and 14, the chapter is clearly talking about the Ophanim, and then it describes the faces. Says the Ababinel, yeah, it's true. The Chaios, they had four faces. One was an ox, one was an eagle, one was a lion, one was a man. But the Ophanim, they had four faces, and three were exactly the same as the Chayas, the eagle, the lion, and the man, but the fourth face was different from a Chaya. The fourth face on a Chaya was an ox, and the fourth face on an Ophan was a crew. So he says, that proves my point. But essentially, uh, the chapter ends um, with... Uh, Yechezkel describing the liftoff of um, the uh, Merkava, God's chariot, as it starts to make its exit from the base of Migdosh. And um, But before we move on to chapter 11, there are two issues that we need to deal with in chapter 10 that are unusual, to say the least. Um, uh, one of them is... God's movements from uh, the base of Migdosh uh, and beyond. Now I'm going to share a picture with you which I shared with you last week or I'll, I'll read the question first or I'll go through the question first. Um, God's presence uh, when it was, uh, so to speak, if you, if you know uh, 
Buckingham Palace. So you know Buckingham Palace when the uh, the flag, the Union flag, is flying, it means the king's in residence. The king's uh, like at home. And Lahavdil Elif Havdolos. If you think about the base of Migdosh, um, God's presence in the base of Migdosh, um, his his point of residence was the Kodesh Kadoshi. His Shechina, uh, so to speak, his presence, whatever that means. God's essence was located in the Kodesh Kadoshim, in the Holy of Holies, which is a, a, a place um, which is completely shut off from humanity. I'll show you the picture in a minute. Uh, the only person allowed to interact with God's presence in the Kodesh Kadoshim was the Kohen Godol once a year on Yom Kippur. The other 364 days of the year, uh, the Kodesh Kadoshim could not be entered. And Vahazor HaKarebu Mos, anyone that went in there was immediately killed, immediately died. And uh, it was a place of ultimate sanctity within the physical realm. And that's where God lived. Um, so apart from that one day a year, and that one person, the Kohen God or the high priest, no one was allowed there. Even, even to the extent if repairs had to be made to the Kodesh Kadoshim, for example... There was some uh, something wrong with the curtains. They need to be repaired. Um, it, the work was done in a way to ensure that the workers saw nothing but what they had to repair. Um, the floor of the chamber above the Holy of Holies had trapdoors surrounding the walls of the room. And they used to uh, insert a large box supported by a rope. They used to drop it down into the Kodesh Kadoshim, which was completely sealed, um, and it could be lowered through, through this trap door, uh, this trap door above the Kodesh Kadoshim. They would lower the worker in this enclosed trap door into the Kodesh Kadoshim, and any workers that had to repair the walls or any part of the Kodesh Kadoshim were lowered through these trap doors into the chamber below, and their view of the Kodesh Kadoshim was completely blocked off except they dropped them down to the point where the repairs had to be done, and then there was a little uh, cubbyhole, or a little um, opening in the uh, chamber, and they would open that up, and all they would see was the piece of, uh, uh, of the wall, or the curtain that had to be repaired. That's to the extent um, that uh, entering the Kodesh Kadoshim was completely verboten, was completely forbidden. And uh, this is all uh, explained in great detail by the Rambam in his Hilchus uh, Beis Abachira, the laws of the Beis Amikdosh, in chapter 4 and chapter 7. Um, now what we see in this chapter, um, in chapter 10, is God's presence is seen by Yechezkel leaving the Kodesh Kadoshim, which is not good. It's not a good sign. His first movement, so to speak, is to leave the Kodesh Kadoshim. Um, in this chapter, it moves first from inside the Kodesh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies, where it was above the Oron, between the two cherubs, the two Kerubim, the two golden Kerubim that sat above the Ark. Its first movement was from the Kodesh Kadoshim um, into the area, or through the curtains, into the area which is called the Kodesh. Now, I'll share the picture with you. Uh, so you'll see what I mean. Um, I did this last week, but now it becomes even more important that you understand what's going on here. Um, uh, if you look at this picture, uh, first of all, to 
just to orientate yourself, I hope everyone can see, uh, just to orientate yourself, um, that's the north, west, north, south, east and west. So, and there's the base of Migdosh. Now if you look, on the left hand side you see the Kodesh Kadoshim, uh, pointed with a red arrow. That's where God's, uh, and there's the ark inside of it. And um, that's where God's presence was originally. Now you, there's a there's a a turquoise one, uh, which is right to the right of the the curtains of the Kodesh Kadoshim, which is called the the entrance between or the um, the curtains that separated the Kodesh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies, with the Kodesh or the Heichal, which is like the sanctuary. Um, and God's first movement was from the Kodesh Kadoshim to point one. That's what happened first in this chapter. Secondly, uh, after this happened, um, uh, so God now, so to speak, is in the Heichal, or the Kodesh, um, uh, where the menorah was, where the table was, where the altar was. Now, the only people allowed in this area were the Kohen Godol and the regular Kohanim. And regular Kohanim were only allowed in this area if they were Tahor. And if they were going to do perform a specific task there, like uh, changing the showbreads which were on the table, or lighting the menorah, or bringing some incense onto the Mizbeach, onto the altar. So at the end of this first move, um, where God is now at point one, uh, God has moved from a place uh, where originally only one person could see him once a year, to a place where a large group of people, uh, Kohanim, could see him whenever they were doing Avoda, whenever they were in um, the Kodesh, in this section um, next to the Kodesh Kadoshim. Um, as a result, any Kohen entering the Kodesh at this time will come face to face with God's presence, which under normal circumstances, could, as I said before, could only be seen by the Kohen God on Yom Kippur. Now, later on in the chapter, God's presence moves again for a second time. And this time, Yechezkel reports that it moved between the Azora and the Kodesh, which, uh, again, if you look at the picture, so you'll see that's marked by the uh, turquoise number two. Now, that's the entrance or the exit going, going um, um, in the direction of west to east, uh, from west to east to point two, which is the exit of the Kodesh and to the entrance of the Ulam, which uh, anybody could enter. So, you're left with a situation um, at that point, God's presence was visible to everybody because all Jews were allowed to enter parts of the Azara provided they were Torah, provided they'd been to the Mikvah. And the entranceway between the Azara and the Kodesh could even be seen by, from the Ula, from the Great Hall, even from the exit or, or the entranceway of the Beis HaMikdosh, uh, which uh, is in yellow, the front entrance. If you were coming through the front entrance, uh, and you're looking straight ahead at the entrance of the Ulam, which led, which was uh, where there were stairs, which led up to the Kodesh. That's where God was posi positioned now. So that anyone entering the base of Migdosh could, would come face to face with God's presence. And um, the question is, why would God do that? God's leaving the base of Migdosh. Um, and 
And why didn't he just leave? Why didn't he just get up from the Kodesh Kadoshu? Why, why does he feel that he needs to show himself firstly to the Kohanim and then exit through the front door? Why does he want to exit through the front door? Why would, why would God do this? Why would God want his presence to become more revealed as he ex- exits the Beit HaMikdash? After all, the whole point of him leaving was to hide his presence. He's going into a state of hest upon him. We're going into exile. And God's presence is not going to be visible for at least 70 years. So why, when he leaves, is he leaving in a way that everyone can see him leave? Um, it just seems to defeat the whole object of the exercise. So this is a question that's asked by many Kabbalists. Um, now, I've not got a Kabbalistic answer. I've got a pragmatic answer. Um, I think uh, Larry wrote me a WhatsApp last week. I asked this question last week uh, in, in more briefly. Um, Larry wrote me an answer. He, he almost, almost hit the nail on the head. Um, but um, I think the answer is like this. If you look at this in human terms, with a re- regular king of flesh and blood, when King Charles III, our glorious king, is in re- residence in Buckingham Palace, only very few people get to see him. And certainly when he's inside Buckingham Palace, even fewer people get to see him or, or even interact with him. Courtiers, family members, ministers of the crown, and even then, only if they've got some business with him, and certainly some, some members of his family he doesn't want there at all. Um, the time that people get to see him and interact with him is when he chooses to leave uh, the sanctuary of his palace and go out and meet the people. Royal visits to various parts of the kingdom, etc., etc. Um, a person can stand outside Buckingham Palace and wait for the king's motorcade to leave to get a glimpse of the king. But you can only see him when he leaves, not while he's, he's still inside the palace. So, I think the answer is this. So when God chooses to leave his inner sanctum, in this case he will be leaving for an extended period. He's going to be leaving for at least 70 years. As he leaves, anyone in the immediate vicinity gets to see him as he leaves. God, however, has got an extra issue to take into consideration. God could have... Prince Charles has to... King Charles has to leave the Buckingham Palace either by car or by helicopter. He's got to come out the building some way. He's a human being. God, on the other hand, could have left without going through any doors. He could have just left. He's not a physical being. doesn't have to get a car. doesn't have to... You know, going to the car park, doesn't have to be picked up outside by his uh, helicopter. He could just easily have gone up, gone up instead of out. So I think the message that uh, God is sending here um, to the Jewish people is this. Number one, I'm leaving and I want everyone to see me leave. There's going to be destruction, there's going to be death, there's going to be suffering here, and I will be gone when that happens. And more than that, the destruction, the death and the suffering will take place because I have left the building. God wanted the people to see him leave. To know that the final nail in their coffin had been, so to speak, uh, nailed in. That's number one. And number two, the other message of God here is I'm leaving in a visible way to let you know I've not gone up to heaven and shut myself off. I'm leaving through the front door and intend to go with the people that survived the destruction, the death and the suffering into exile 
and I'll be amongst you there. In other words, uh, on the one hand, I'm leaving, and that's going to lead to destruction, on, because I'm leaving. On the other hand, I'm coming with you. Wherever you go into exile, so to speak, God says, I'm coming. I want you to see that I'm coming with you. So, and this is um, something that's uh, clear, just by the fact that Yechezkel is a prophet, and he's prophesying in Babylonia. Normally, prophecies take place in the land of Israel. Um, but here we see prophecy taking place. Uh, Yechezkel's prophecies are very powerful and are actually taking place in Babylonia. So, God, so to speak, is there as well. God's presence, although it's hidden, is there as well. And that's one of the messages why God, so to speak, wants to be seen to be leaving. Uh, he wants to be seen to be leaving to, to let them know that destruction is on the way. But also, when they go into exile, God will be there with them as well, even though they won't be able to, so to speak, um, get access to him the way they had access to him while he was in the base of English. So, that is, clears up one, I'll stop the share now, um, and I go back to really uh, something that is absolutely, uh, um, um, I don't know the best way to describe it, it is unusual in the extreme. Um, there's a story in chapter 10 which we've discussed. Um, it's called The Strange Case of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel not listening to God. If you remember, and I, this is something that has to be dealt with before we can move on, and the reason that has to be dealt with is because I can't, I can't deal with a problem, unless, unless it's a Kabbalistic problem and there's no solution to it, or unless it's a, a, an intellectual problem that's beyond my intellect, uh, I won't let it go until I understand what's going on. So, at the beginning of chapter, uh, uh, of the chapter, of chapter 10 that we just learnt, during the Cheskel's vision, um, and I'm just reminding you of the events so that you'll understand what the problem is here. Uh, during Yechezkel's vision, and after Yechezkel had pleaded successfully with God to commute the sentence on uh, the nation of Yehuda, the city of Yerushalayim, and the base of Migdosh, the temple itself, so rather than annihilate everyone in Yerushalayim, which was the first part of the plan, if you remember, the six destroyers came into Yerushalayim with the man clothed in white linen, that was Gabriel, and he had um, his pen and paper in his hand to keep score that everyone should be accounted for, that everyone should be killed. That was the original plan. Yecheskel made an appeal, um, and the appeal was that part of God's fury, God's punishment, would be mitigated with the burning of the city, and the burning down of the temple. And God, so to speak, agreed to that. And that people, there would be plenty of people that would escape the carnage. And at the end, you'd end up with two million Jews in Babylonia, in, in, in exile. At that point, we had the strange story of Gabriel being ordered by God. Uh, I'm, uh, and again, I'm reminding you of, this is a, the story that we have discussed for weeks. Um, we have the strange story of Gabriel being ordered by God to pick up the coals from below the Chayos, from be below the Kruvin. The, remember the Kruvin, um, these Chayos, these angels, uh, below their feet uh, was fire. 
um, and uh, God ordered uh, Gabriel to pick up the coals from below the feet of the Chayas, the Krubim, and throw the burning hot coals over the city of uh, Yerushalayim and the Beis Amidosh. That was in the dream. That was in the allegory. Then we had this strange Gomorrah from Yuma. The Gomorrah in Yuma on that Ein Zayn on page 77 explained what was going on here and explained something that really should be unexplainable. The Gomorrah says, the Gomorrah says as follows. Just uh, mute everybody because I'm getting some feedback. Um, the Gemara in Yuma says as follows God said to Michael the senior defender of Israel the arch archangel Michael Omed Al-Ha'am who is the, the, one of the two uh, angels that protect the Jewish people he said to Michael the nation of Israel has sinned uh, Michael replied Rebona Shalom Master of the Universe is it possible that the righteous people among them can save them all from destruction. God said to him, no, they've gone beyond that. I'm going to burn the city. Um, and, um, and even some of the righteous will be killed because the righteous did not rebuke the wicked. And which is something we discussed before. Why were the righteous killed with the wicked? Because the righteous didn't object, didn't rebuke. They didn't object to what the wicked people were doing. And so they were casualties or collateral damage in the carnage. And after that, immediately God spoke to Gabriel. This is in chapter, in, in verse 2. Uh, he told Gabriel, Go underneath the, uh, the legs of the, um, the, the chayos, the angels. Fill your hands with coals of fire. And throw them on the city, which was the uh, which was the compromise agreement that um, Yecheskel had uh, made with God that uh, the city would not be completely not that the inhabitants of the city would not be completely destroyed, but that the base Amigdash in the city itself would be burnt up in fire. And so that's what he told Gabriel to do. Now, moving forward to verse seven, um, we're told. And the Chaya, the angel, extended his hand, um, El, El Ho'esh, to the fire. And he gave it to the hands of the one clothed in linen, Gabriel. And Gabriel took the fire, the coals, and left. Then the Gomorrah continues and says that Gabriel reported back to God, which is from the previous chapter, I have done exactly what you commanded me to do. And uh, what we discussed at the time was that the reality was, as we know now, um, as we now know, Gabriel didn't do exactly as he, as he was told to do. Rather, he did something similar to what he was commanded to do. But he made two deliberate errors. This is something we pointed out in the Shear a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. God told him to take the coals himself, but he didn't do that. He waited for the Chaya, for the Krub, for this angel to hand them to him. Number two, he was told to throw the coals on the city straight away. But, as we see from the Gemara, and we see from the Posuk, Vayikach Vayetze, 
he took the coals and he waited. And the Gemara said he waited for five years uh, in order that the, these, uh, so to speak, these spiritual coals should um, cool off. As a result, the Gemara says, and he lied about it because he said, and he reported back to God, don't worry God, I've done exactly what you told me to do. And the reality was he didn't. He didn't pick up the fire himself, and he didn't, and he didn't throw the fire on the city immediately. He waited. So as a result, the Gomorrah continues, and the Gomorrah says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, at that moment, they threw Gavriel out from behind the inner curtain, from behind the paragon, where the inner angels reside, where the, uh, I think there are seven, there's a difference of opinion, but there are seven angels that reside in there, Michael, Uriel, Gavriel, Michael, uh, Raphael, and Metatron, and uh, two others, which whose names we don't say, um, and they threw him out. They threw him out of like the cabinet office. Uh, and they said, not only that, but when they threw him out, um, they hit him. They struck him with 60 pulsa denura, 60 pulses of fire as a punishment for his disobedience and, and lying to God. Um, and the Gemara says, the heavenly court explained to Gabriel about their verdict. You, Gabriel, had two choices. You could, have a, you could have done what God told you to do. In other words, pick up the coals yourself and throw them immediately on the city. Or you could have refused to do what God ordered you to do. Totally. You could have said no. I'm not doing it. But what you chose to do was to straddle the fence and do the job half-cocked, so to speak. You let the angel hand you the coals when you should have taken it yourself and then you delayed throwing them on the city and then you came and lied that you had completed your mission successfully. As Gabriel said, God, I've done everything you told me to do. Now, that... That Gomorrah is like very strange and how can it be, uh, as I mentioned to you at the time, I told you I had no idea what the Gomorrah meant. After all, how could Gabriel, an angel, deliberately disobey the word of God? Uh, number one, after all he's an angel with no uh, extended free will. Like he can't, An angel can't choose to do what God tells him and... Uh, and say, you know, I'm sick today, I'm having a sick day, or I'm not doing it, like human beings can do. Uh, and secondly, even, even more perplexing, is the idea that in the court case that he was subjected to, he was accused and convicted of lying about he, what, he would done, what he had done. And uh, the third thing that's really weird, is he gets punished with something that we would associate only with human beings. He gets punished with 60 pulsa denura. 60 pulses of fire. So, all these three questions, uh, at the time, I, I, I expressed to you the idea, I've got no idea what this Gemara is talking about. Like, how, how can it be? Number one, how could Gabriel not do what he was told to do? Angels don't have free will. Number one, how could he lie about it afterwards? Angels can't lie. And thirdly, why is an angel being punished with a, a, a punishment that is... Not has got no has no so to speak reflection in the spiritual world. If you if you if you hit a human being 
uh, you know, with a, or you brand a human being 60 times with something that's burning, so there's an effect. But an angel's a spiritual being. How does the fire affect him? So, from the perspective of those three questions I said to you at the time, I have no idea what this Gomorrah is talking about. But I've got to tell you, it grated on me. I've learned that Gomorrah a few times on, on my journey through Shaz. And I've always skipped over it because I never really, oh, I, I, I recognised in myself that I'd never get really to understand it. But, <laughs> I was determined to do so for the purposes of the sheer and also for, for the purposes of satisfying my intellectual curiosity. So I went back and looked at this uh, Gomorrah and the continuation of the Gomorrah and now I think I'm in a position to try and explain what this strange story is all about. And this is something you'll have never heard before and hopefully it's something that will open your eyes um, to how deep the book of Yechezkel is and how deep the book of Daniel is. Because there is a very, very strong connection here uh, to what happened to Gabriel and the book of Daniel and how it connects to the book of Yechezkel. So, we'll start it tonight and hopefully we'll complete it next week. But uh, be warned, this is something you'll never have heard before. I'm going to explain to you something that's got great depth and, um, and, and the end game of the explanation, of my explanation of this Gomorrah and this story is very surprising. So, after Gavriel is punished, the Gomorrah continues uh, its story of Gavriel. Uh, so, Gavriel has completely, uh, you know, he's been convicted of uh, not doing what he was told on two counts. He's been convicted of lying to God. He's been kicked out of his place in the upper heavenly realm with the other archangels and he's been whipped with 60 pulses of fire. The Gomorrah now continues the story. After being punished, the Gomorrah says, I'm going to summarize the Gomorrah for you. Uh, in parts, I'll, I'll read it to you directly. In parts, I'll summarize it because it's a very long piece. After being punished for his sub, sub, uh, subordination with the 60 pulses of fire, 60 pulses de Nura, Gabriel was banished from the inner court of God for 21 years. 21 years. Now again, that doesn't seem to make any sense. What's time? How is time relevant in the spiritual realm? When, you, when you're dealing with a realm uh, of the angels who are, so to speak, cabinet ministers to a being who created time and to whom time means nothing, what does it mean that uh, he was kicked out for 21 years? That actually says 21 days. It means 21 years. Um, and replaced with another angel. After all, they were short of one angel now in the inner court. And the Gemara says the angel that was chosen to replace Gabriel was an angel you'll never have heard before. He's called Dubiel. Dubiel. Uh, he's called, he's, uh, Dubiel comes from the language of Dove, which is a bear which is the, uh, he's the ministering angel of the Persian Empire, and the Persians throughout uh, Tanakh, and also in the Gemara, are always referred to as bears, um, and their emblem, if you look at the emblem of, a, of the ancient Persian Empire, one of their emblems was a bear, and their angel is called Dubiel, and he is, he is, uh, 
Gabriel's replacement, so to speak, at the cabinet, in God's cabinet, upstairs in heaven. Now, bear with me, because this is um, where it crosses over into the book of Daniel. This event is reported directly by Daniel. In Daniel, in the 10th chapter of Daniel, in verse 13, Daniel reports this strange changeover in the inner workings of the upper realm, of the Supreme Court, if you like, God's Supreme Court. He writes, All of a sudden, you remember Daniel is getting help from Michael and he's getting help from Gabriel throughout the book. But suddenly he says, And the angel, the Tsar, the prince, the angel of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me, Esrim ve'echodyom. 21 days, which means 21 years. Remember, days and uh, years in the book of Daniel are interchangeable. Weeks mean years, days mean years. Uh, it's the language he uses. So he says, V'sarim al-chus pras omed lenegdi esrim ve'echod yo. The sar, this dubiel, was against me, was, was uh, blocking me, was preventing me from getting access to the upper realms, for 21 years. Ve'hinei Michael, and Michael, Michael, Achad Hasorim Harishonim, one of the primary angels, Baal Azraini, he came to help me. Now the angel that normally is helping uh, Daniel is not Michael. The, not, the angel that's normally helping uh, Michael is Gabriel. So Gabriel has, so to speak, disappeared from the scene. And I remained in exile, working for the kings of Persia. In other words, he's, Daniel's given us the insight um, into what happened in the story that we're looking at in Yechezkel. We were told in Yechezkel that uh, Gabriel, for his insubordination, was kicked out of the inner court of God for 21 years and replaced by this Dubiel, who is the angel of the Persians, and Daniel has noticed it, because now, he's instead of being helped by Gabriel, he's being thwarted by Dubiel, by the angel of the Persians. And um, then Daniel gives us an insight into his mindset during those 21 days, during those 21 years. He writes, In those days, Ani Daniel Hayisi Mis Abel Shloshim Shwayim Yomim. I Daniel made myself into mourning for three weeks of days. I twenty three weeks is twenty one. For three weeks of days, for twenty one days, for twenty one years. So um, as you can see, the twenty one years that uh, Daniel is in mourning, as we'll see later or you can see it now, correspond to the 21 years that we were told in the Gomorrah and Umar that Gabriel was kicked out, kicked out of heaven for, the, for 21 years. And during those 21 years, Daniel is in mourning. Shloshosh v'o'ayim yomim. 23 weeks of days, 21 years. Now, let's just reflect on the timeline so we can absolutely be sure we know what's going on here 
uh, in these verses in Doniel. The Babylonians first conquered the southern kingdom of Yehuda in the year 441 BCE. The fourth, the first temple, that was 441 BCE. The first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, 19 years later, in either the year 422 or 423 BCE. The Babylonians were in turn replaced by the Persians, the Medes, under Cyrus the Great, in about the year 371 BCE, like about 50 years later, 40, 51 years later. Now, all the nations knew that the Jews had been sentenced to exile for 70 years. The prophecies of Yirmiyahu, of Jeremiah, were well known to the Babylonians, they were well known to the Medes, they were well known to the Persians. There was no Netflix in those days, there were no novels to read in those days. People read, people read the prophecies of prophets from different countries. And the prophecies of Yirmiyahu were very well known in the empires of Babylonia and the Medes and the Persians. They knew that the sentence on the Jewish people was 70 years. Now three rulers of these empires, the Babylonians and the Persian empires, miscalculated when the 70 year period of exile ran from and ran to. It starts off with Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the third king of Babylonia. He's the son of Ebel Moradoch, and he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who's the guy that destroyed Yerushalayim. He made the first miscalculation. He believed that the 70 years of exile for the Jews began from the year that Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, alighted the throne, which was 441 BCE. Um, ascended the throne. He said, that was the year that the 70 years of the Jewish exile began, and consequently, when the Jews hadn't been uh, repatriated by God 70 years later, in the year 371 BCE, he threw a huge party to celebrate the fact that the 70 years were up, and the Jews were still in exile, and that God had broken his promise. And he threw a huge party, he used the captured vessels that had been in his family since the time of his grandfather, the captured vessels of the base of Migdosh, at his party. And during that party, we had the famous story of the hand. The hand came and wrote on the wall, uh, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsid. Now, it was written in Aramaic, so Belshazzar should have been able to work out what it meant. But if you look in the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin, you'll see that it was written in a particular way that was illegible and it needed to be interpreted, and they called Daniel to interpret it, and he said to King Belshazzar, Mene, Mene, Tekel of Farsin, you, Belshazzar, have been weighed, and found wanting, and you're going to be replaced with the Persians. The Babylonian Empire is over, and they will be replaced Ufarsin with the Persians. That night, the Medes, and Persian uh, army under Cyrus the Great invaded, secretly invaded the city of Babylonia, assassinated Belshazzar, and took control of the Babylonian Empire. That was the first miscalculation. And uh, the consequences of that miscalculation. 
The second miscalculation was by Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great believed, and now he's the new king, he's the new emperor of what was once the Babylonian Empire, he also made a miscalculation. He believed the 70 years of exile for the Jews began from the year 440, when Nebuchadnezzar captured Yerushalayim and Yehuda, defeating King Yehoiakim. Consequently, Cyrus the Great, who is described in the Tanakh as a Mashiach, after ascending the throne, he didn't make a party, he was frightened of God. In the year 371, he immediately ordered that any Jews who wished to return to Israel and rebuild the temple could do so. And we know that 42,360 Jews, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Yehoshua Kohen Godol, returned and began to rebuild the temple. But Cyrus the Great almost immediately suspended the reconstruction of the temple in the year 370, or it could have been even in the year 371, the same year, after complaints by the so-called indigenous population of Yehuda, who were the Shomronim, the Samaritans, uh, who had controlled the land of Israel after the Jews were sent into exile. Now, after Cyrus's order to con- discontinue the rebuilding project in the year 370 or the year 371, that's when Daniel wrote, Bayomim Hohein, in those days, Ani Doniel Hoyisi Misabel Shlosha Shvuaim Yomim. During those days, I, Daniel, was in mourning three weeks of years. In other words, 21 years. Because it's going to be another 21 years before the second Beis Amigdash was completed and had its dedication ceremony. So, in the year 370 or the year 371 BC, that's when Daniel said, I am going to be in mourning for 21 years. Knowing full well that the, the reason for his mourning um, was that the temple had been, the rebuilding of the temple had been suspended. He considered that worthy of availus, of mourning, and he mourned for 21 years until the second temple was eventually completed in the year 350 BCE. Now, just as a point of reference, um, it doesn't affect our story. Uh, that, that, that part of the, what I've just explained to you is the key element, as we'll see in a second. But the third person that made the miscalculation was Achashverosh. In the story of Purim, he believed the 70 years of exile for the Jews began in the year 433 or 434 BCE, when Nebuchadnezzar, who was his grandfather-in-law, he was married to Vashti, um, uh, sorry, his great-grandfather-in-law, he was married to Vashti, who was fourth generation from Nebuchadnezzar, she didn't fare so well either, but he felt, Achashverosh's calculation was, that the 70 years of exile was from the year 433 or 434 BCE, when Nebuchadnezzar took the king of Yehuda, Yechonia, into exile. He thought that was the start of the 70 years of exile, when the king of Yehuda, King Yechoniah, went into exile, together with Daniel, together with Yechezkel, together with Mordechai, and all the leaders and intellectuals of Israel, that, that's when they all went into exile. Achashverosh figured that's what it means. Count the 70 years from that date. Consequently, we see Achashverosh throwing a party 70 years later, in the year 364 uh, BCE, 
to celebrate the fact that the 70 years were up and the Jews were still in exile, he too, like Belshazzar before him, used the captured vessels of the base of Migdosh as his party. This is all re- reported in the first chapter of Megillus Esther. This was the, the party that, uh, uh, when Vashti was killed for not attending, and signaled the start of the story of Purim. But, what we are concerned with, and what we will deal with next week, and we will unravel what's going on with Gabriel being thrown out of God's court for 21 years, and what's it got to do with Daniel mourning for 21 years over the fact that he can't make any progress because the base of Midrash, because of the in- interference of this Dubiel, this, this angel uh, that, uh, of the Persian Empire that's been introduced has replaced Gabriel in the upper court. Gabriel's out for 21 years. Uh, Daniel is thwarted for 21 years. And the base of Midrash doesn't get built for another 21 years. We are concerned, what we are concerned with in understanding this Gomorrah from Yuma is the second miscalculation of Cyrus the Great. If we can get to the bottom of that, and we can get to the bottom of the suspension of the building of the second temple that caused Daniel to go into mourning for 21 years until the base of Hamidosh, the second temple, was finally completed 21 years later in the year 350. Um, then, and try and relate Gabriel being thrown out of the inner sanctum of God for 21 years. Daniel is mourning for 21 years. Um, what is the connection between the two? Don't miss next week's shit because I'm going to explain something to you that you've never, you've never, I've never seen anyone write it up. I've never seen anyone write it. I've never seen anyone explain it this way. Uh, 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 this is my explanation. Uh, uh, if somebody else is, uh, understands it this, this way, I apologize. But this is the way I understand it. I explained it to Rosh Hashiva. And he says it's uh, it, it's good, it, it makes sense, um, and again, don't miss next week's shit because we're going to reach some conclusions here between the connection between this story of Gabriel being thrown out of heaven, so to speak, and being whipped sixty times uh, with fire, and this story of Daniel being thwarted by Jubiel, by the angel of the empire of. Um, the Persians. Just, just to a footnote to end the Shia, I know I've gone over time, but just a footnote to end the Shia, um, the, we, we mentioned that three people miscalculated when the 70 year exile started and ended. We mentioned Belshazzar, he suffered um, uh, assassination because he miscalculated. We mentioned Cyrus the Great, he miscalculated. And we mentioned Nachashverosh, he miscalculated. So when was the real starting point of Yirmiyoh's prophecy of a 70-year exile? Well, it began the second the base of English was destroyed in 422 BCE and ended when the reconstruction of the second base of Migdosh restarted in the year 352 BCE under the orders of Darius, the king of Persia, the son of Nachashverosh and Esther. Now, that's where we're going to leave it. And next week, we're going to go into this story 
um, in great depth. And as I said, shocking revelations coming out. I'm not plugging next week's year, um, but just to tell you, it's a year not to be missed. Um, a timeline that I can share with you what of you, you uh, I will I will post a, I will post a timeline uh, an excel spreadsheet timeline of Jewish history in the um uh, I'll ask Larry to to put it up in the uh Yecheskel, um uh, WhatsApp group okay Okay, great. E586. Yeah, so that, that's the difference between our calculations, which come from the Gomorrah Nabodazora and the Sefer Doros, um, and the calculations based on um, the Sanchei of Stone, which was found in Assyria. Um, the dates of the academics is based on the Sanchero stone, uh, which dates um, the destruction, which through his walls and the dates we know he con- conducted his walls and his surrounding of Jerusalem, um, puts the date at 586 BCE, um, and our calculation is 422-423 BCE is 160 something year difference. But, but, I'll finish off with this point because everyone should understand this. The Tanakh is very, very clear. Everybody agrees, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, whether you're a secular Bible critic, everybody agrees that the Jewish people left Egypt in the year 1312 BCE, that they were 40 years in the desert, and that they arrived and uh, uh, entered the land of Israel in the year 1272 BCE, 40 years later. The Tanakh reports, Shlomo HaMelech writes that the Beis HaMikdosh, the first temple, was dedicated 480 years later. 480 years after the exodus from Egypt. Now, if you take 480 years off 1312, you get to the year 832 or 833 that the first temple was dedicated. The first temple lasted 410 years. You go through Tanakh and go through the kings of uh, Yehuda, you'll see that the first temple stood for 410 years. So from the year 833, when the base of first temple was dedicated, 410 years after that is the year 423 or 422 BCE. That's the basis of our calculation. We base it on the Tanakh, we base it on the Gomorrah Nebuchadnezzar, and we base it on the Seder Hadoros. The academic, secular calculation is based on the Sancheirov stone. Um, which one is accurate? Well, um, in the context of history, it's irrelevant. Uh, really, um, it's neither here nor there because the base of Midrash was destroyed. Everyone agrees to that. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans. Everyone agrees with that, except the Palestinians, because the, according to them, there was no temple ever. 
Um, but so I, I'll put a timeline up. I'll get a timeline. I'll send it to um, Larry, and I'll I'll get him to to post it on. Um, I get him to post it on the Hesco WhatsApp group so everyone can see it in great detail. Until then, and again, I'll stress what's coming up next. Uh, you won't hear anywhere else. Um, it's not in any book. It's not anywhere. But um, you'll hear it next week. Please, God, by then you'll have a, uh, a, a uh, discrete timeline so that you can have a look at. I'll try and arrange that straight away. In the meantime, call to everybody. Thanks for taking part. Thanks for listening. And we'll complete this uh, issue next week. And we'll get to, eventually we'll get to chapter 11. Please, God, next week as well. Called up to everybody. Shavua Tov. Gitavoch. Um, have, a, have a great week. Tomorrow's my birthday. Um, tomorrow's my birthday. Anybody that wants my bank details um, to put a very large... Don't, I'm not messing around with small money. Anything over $100,000. Greatly appreciated. Uh, if you want to let me know, you, you, I can pass you on my bank details or my wife's bank details. Anyway, joking. Um, it's my, it is my birthday tomorrow, and um, and uh, and that's it. That's all I can tell you. That's the only thing. That's the only thing of importance this week. Cold tub to everybody. Have a great week. See you. Please God in health and happiness. Same time, same place next week. Cold tub.